Hello and welcome. I'm Gary Scheib. Thanks for listening in as we continue to talk with leaders in our community. And we are having some great weather to start our summer with. And lots of us are getting outdoors more. Many great places to be outside are right here in the city limits, one of which is Carkeek Park in northwest Seattle. It's a park worth enjoying and thereby worthy of protecting its assets. Our guest today is the director of the Carkeek Park Watershed Community Action Project. Rick Henry joins us today. Rick, welcome. Thanks for coming. Thank you, Gary. Uh, one right off the bat, one minor correction, if you Uh-oh. don't mind. It's the Carkeek Watershed Community Action Project. Oh, so we don't put the park in the, the watersh- in the actual name. The park is not in there. Oh, okay. Well, but it is all about Carkeek Park. And this is. is a great park. Uh, if, if people aren't residents of Northeast Seattle, they might not know it. Give us a little quick description, maybe, of the park itself, and then we'll get into what you guys do with your uh, action project there. Oh, very good. As you mentioned, it's in northwest Seattle. It's at about the uh, Broadview neighborhood level uh, there in uh, near the Sound. It is about 200 acres in size, depending on whether you're taking in uh, the beach and at which tide you're, you're including. Uh-huh. Uh, it's So it's not... Uh, the largest park by any stretch in the Seattle area, but it, it is um, sufficiently large enough to support a lot of second growth uh, forestry, and uh, there are a number of uh, creeks that are I'll be talking about today. The main creek is Piper's Creek, which is a uh, uh, the actual name of the watershed comes from that channel, the Piper's Creek watershed. Uh, we call our nonprofit the Carkeek Watershed Community Action Project. And by way of explanation, I like to say it's a watershed community action project called Carkeek. Okay. So, but it is Piper's Creek Watershed. And uh, I think uh, in my uh, number of years experience with the park, uh, there are many that visit that certainly don't know the name Carkeek or the name Pipers. Uh, however, unless you live in the residential areas of Greenwood and Broadview particularly, uh, it is a a deeply ravined, uh, almost canyonous type of a park, uh, which historically uh, was used uh, to great success in the development of the upper areas of the watershed because drainage from uh, surface water uh, was made easy by simply running pipes down into those uh, ravines. Um, there are uh, two tributaries, two, the two largest of the tributaries, Venema Creek and Mullendorf Creek, both uh, join Piper's Creek, which then empties uh, into Puget Sound. Uh, these, all three of these tributaries are used extensively as stormwater conveyance uh, um, vehicles for uh, Seattle Public Utilities and support a massive amount of drainage from those areas. Yeah. Now, now uh, I would like to just briefly mention that uh, when you go to this park, you will not notice any of that. You will see a, a, a remarkably pristine and a joyous forested park, and uh, there are many amenities there. Yeah, and it is a pretty park because there are, it really is trees, and, and especially this time of year now, they're, they're leafed out and it's nice shady, especially during the summer. There's a, it is steep. There's an upper, you know, people go in, what'd you say, Broad View, really, is Broadview. kind of the na- mm-hmm. neighborhood. Yes. But there's a parking lot, and then it's steep down to the beach that you actually have access to the beach so there's a lot of parts if you just think of it as a park but so the water running through it (laughs) 
this is something I don't think people stop and think about. Our parks, uh, yeah, everything eventually has got to run into Puget Sound. And before development, this was a creek and salmon probably spawned up it. And then, like you said, as people grew and we developed and grew as a city, neighborhoods grew and took over. And, well, what do we do? We channel our stuff into creeks and they dump into Puget Sound. And for many years, we humans thought, oh, we'll just put stuff, put our garbage into the ocean and it'll clean up and that's all we have to think about it. But that's kind of the, the my take on it, very uh, uh, inarticulately uh, uh, spoken. But that's the reason you guys need to uh, stop and look at something like this. Say, you know what, we're actually polluting our own um, assets and we got to do something about it. What was the start of the Carkeek Watershed Action Pro- Community Action Project? It, it didn't start with just you, did it, Rick? It did not. In the 60s, uh, Nancy Malmgren, uh, who founded and was the very longtime director of Carkeek Watershed Community Action Project, and from now on I'll simply say CCAP if I have to refer to it. That's the, CCAP, that's what you guys call it. The acronym, yes. Yeah, so it's okay. a rough use of the... Close enough letters and people get that. But actually, I should say right up front. So as people are listening online, you have a presence, right? Carkeekwatershed.org is an easy way to remember what we're talking about, right? Carkeekwatershed.org. But you guys call yourself CCAP. Okay. Yeah. Nancy Malmgren. Nancy in the 60s worked with... Girl Scouts worked in the community and um, uh, had a fondness. She lived right on the edge of the park. Uh, had an, had a fondness. Took those Girl Scouts down there, as the the stories go. And um, and they at the time the park was um, well. It it really was a fundamentally a storm conveyance uh, aspect of Seattle, and there wasn't a developed park as we know it today by any stretch. She uh, had her troops, uh, if I can call Girl Scout troops, I guess. Uh, Yes. Uh, um, Ponder what they would do if uh, they had a chance to make uh, improvements. So uh, I'll I'll fast forward. Along comes uh, things such as the Clean Air Act of 1970, the Clean Water Act, particularly of 1972. And by that time, Nancy was on to many other things, including uh, water quality and um, what a citizen, uh, an agency, an institution, uh, an individual in a community could do with the uh, strength of federal law to improve uh, the love of her life. I, I would suspect she had many loves, but one of them was that park for sure. And she uh, put all of her energy, her her personality, her intelligence, and uh, her network of uh, a growing network of uh, community politicians to uh, assemble many, many, many successful improvements, restorations. We're talking trails. We're talking uh, the salmon slide uh, playground. We have. Uh, gardens there. We have uh, an environmental learning center, a gold leads certified building. We have um, other um, uh, uh, um, amenities. The primary one that has made uh, my life a pleasure in this stage of my life is the salmon restoration that she did. Her husband, Les Mongren, both passed now, but uh, he uh, decided that since there were salmon at one point historically running in that creek due to the Clean Water Act and Nancy's uh, political action, uh, why not uh, 
restore salmon to that creek. And so uh, in 1979, Car Creek Watershed Community Action Project began, and we have had so many milestones that would be such a joy to talk about. Um, but I, I want to bring us forward. She's passed. We have a, a legacy to continue. We have new questions, new solutions to search for, and a growing community around us. Uh, of watershed groups, of community groups that are uh, looking at something like we've done, uh, and not just us, but um, we have a, a very unique and very uh, definable success uh, where a community can look at a creek that may not look like it can support salmon, but by golly, if it used to, then there is uh, not an easy one, but there is a, a path, a route, a uh, an outcome that could lead to uh, some restoration and potentially restoration of salmon that that is such a you know when you think about it and, and someone who had a goal like that when they looked at their community and this is my neighborhood park and gee what it was what it might have been before i was here and what it can be after i'm gone that's such a big goal i, I really love that kind of vision out of just you know the regular citizen. The Clean Water Act, I mean, like you said, 72, it gave citizens and groups, right, private, public, the the opportunity, the teeth to sue uh, and say, hey, stop what's going on here. This is my water too. You can't just do this to it, right? I mean, uh, so using actually the power of the courts to say changes have to be made. And so that's really what the Clean Water Act was about, right? Uh, in part, yes, yes, it was, and amendments that followed, and other um, uh, legislation, both federal and state, um, were uh, incorporated and uh, implemented to support um, the, the courtrooms when there were um, issues regarding the quality of water, the, qual- the water quality uh, that was in a community, and uh, the Clean Water Act was a place to start, but so much has been done successfully by now that the the uh, I, I I I would think that we aren't going to federal courts to solve local uh, water quality issues. We've got smarter, much 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 smarter local agencies, and I I have to give a, a shout out to Seattle Public Utilities. They're uh, urban watershed uh, education and outreach programs. Those folks are doing some remarkable things, and CCAP happens to work closely with them at Carkeek Park, but they're citywide, and and they they get it. They get uh, that what you said earlier, that water flows from a point, uh, a point of uh, some elevation, and we'll always seek the lowest elevation possible. And in our area, that's Puget Sound, basically, or Lake Washington, uh, uh, depending on which side of the I-5 yeah. corridor you might be on. Uh, so so we, we start with uh, that fundamental of where water uh, falls and where does it eventually go. And you can, uh, in an urban uh, setting, determine what's going to be required to slow that flow as it once was when it could filter through the ground before we covered it with uh, development yeah and um and then do something about the pro- the fact that it doesn't it no longer gets filtered during that process or, uh, biofiltered and no longer gets cleaned those pipes that are carrying that water down uh very 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 fast into those yeah, water conveyance it just streams. washes away the sediment that's been there for thousands of years. I mean, erodes things that weren't meant to be eroded so quickly. I mean, that's just kind of what you're talking about is 
Um, and the way the Seattle has decided, yeah, we can make some work for the good because all of those things, forty since 45 years of that Clean Water Act, society has actually kind of gotten a hold of, oh, yeah, we shouldn't just tromp on our own natural resources the way we, we have. And, and so you guys are actually, I guess we didn't say this either, a nonprofit, right? Mm-hmm. You run by like volunteers and you Volunteer. have, a, I suppose, a board that makes decisions on what you're going to exactly. do this and that. Let's get into talking about some of those things you do uh, that are there at the park. I'd love to start with that salmon. Uh, there's a pond there that, that you can actually hopefully return salmon naturally spawning to uh to Piper's Creek and the Carkeek Park area was, is there a bulk? I'm trying to picture the the shoreline there. I suppose a long time ago it was a free flowing creek. Maybe a hundred years ago. Do you, I don't know how long we have to talk about the history, but does it freely flow? Are there stops and starts as it comes down mm-hmm. from the bluff down to the the shoreline of, of uh, Puget Sound? There are some uh, particular milestones uh, around 1906. Uh, the uh, northwestern seawall, uh, the Northwestern Railroad, uh, Great Northwestern oh, that's Railroad, right. about uh, put in a seawall there to carry their uh, rail line. And that, um, in the case of Carkeek Park and many other locations along the Sound, uh, basically cut off the estuary access to the creeks that had salmon spawning runs, uh, salmon runs. The effect of eliminating an estuary, which is a nursery for salmon. Yeah, it's where the fresh water and the salt water meet. A lot of different things grow there, and it's where, I mean, young salmon can kind of acclimate themselves before yes. they're ready to run to sea, right? That's right. And and a lot of th- other things live in that habitat that sort of work with each other to to make life natural for them, right? Excellent habitat for um, for hiding, for feeding, for uh, basically growing to the size and strength they need to make that next direction out towards the sound, or out towards the uh, Strait of San Juan de Pica yeah, I mean, and the, the Stage Ocean. after stage after yes. stage, right. Starts in the creek, the sound, the strait, uh, the ocean, and yeah, wow. So uh, the... Uh, so that seawall either was punched through with a culvert to allow a creek on the other side or a large wetland to flow through it back out to the sound, or uh, or it wasn't. And it depends on development, the the needs of the community behind that seawall on the other side. And so in the case of Carkeek Park, culverts were built underneath the railroad tracks, and uh, the water was able to flow it. It served the purpose of water, uh, stormwater conveyance at the time, uh, and so uh, along uh, uh, the founding of uh, CCAP in 1979, the goal really for that program was to restore the natural salmon run there, which uh, is presumed to be coho salmon. And uh, so the first attempts in 79, 80, 81, with all the permitting with Fish and Wildlife and agreements with parks and the utility companies at the time, Department of Ecology, they uh, they attempted to establish a coho uh, um, run. Coho didn't work. Uh, fascinating part of the history, but coho didn't work because of a couple of things. Primarily, uh, the, uh, two things. The creeks are short. Now they're uh, no longer flowing up to say Greenwood and 85th yeah. as it once did, and and so the creeks are short. But uh, almost more than that, but um, certainly uh, the most important to us right now is that the 
water that falls in the watershed so successfully and efficiently is piped to the sound that there is little water left during the summer uh, in the ground to keep those creeks charged. I see. So they're so they're very shallow, uh, and it's true in many places in the region. But uh, the water is so shallow that uh, coho. Uh, whether they're fry emerging from the creek bed or adults returning need a great deal of time, six months, a year, depending on the species, depending on the run, uh, in that creek. Uh, so uh, coho didn't survive for the reasons of being washed out while uh, imprinting in the creek. Imprinting being the uh, process of a, a developing fish to memorize the chemical and mineral signature of uh, that yes. watershed in order to be able to, as adults, return seeking the, the same, last known yeah. successful place where Three they respond. Three or four years later. Exactly. Imprinting, yeah. yeah. So what kind of steps did you change and make? The known species to have a shorter life cycle portion in freshwater uh, happen to be chum salmon. Uh, there are other species. Pink salmon would be one, but chum is the most uh, widely distributed species in numbers uh, in the region. So chum salmon, let's try chum salmon. And uh, and so chum salmon, uh, Oncorhynchus kita, it's a, uh, not um, the commercially successful uh, salmon that most are familiar with, the coho salmon, the sockeye salmon, the chinook salmon. Right. Uh, however, it's it's vastly commercially important in other ways, just not sitting in the right. uh, market <laughs> uh, for you to look at and toss at Pike Market. Uh, chum salmon uh, have this unique ability to adapt. They, they will behave much like other salmon species, but they easily or... Uh, according to our perspective, easily adapt to spawning, in the in our case, within uh, 10 days of returning from saltwater to freshwater. So in the fall, every fall, since reliably since about 87, uh, these fish will enter uh, Piper's Creek and within the day <laughs> seek habitat that would be an a suitable gravelly uh, section bed, of the creek, yeah. mm-hmm. and mate and spawn, and wow. then within ten days they w- and that that's a give or take of a few days uh, will die as you would expect in a normal spawning cycle concluding, and so they don't need that extra six months or a year of other fish that are adapted like chinook or coho that might run up the Columbia River for months on end, still maturing in fresh water, still feeding, still uh, uh, working their way to the point where they would eventually spawn and die like our chum salmon do, but the chum salmon will come in, uh, they'll cross that saltwater, freshwater barrier and uh, not seem to need an adapting phase in the estuary at all. And uh, similarly, the fry that we release, now we release between 80 and 100,000 salmon fry every single spring and have been doing so since the 80s. And uh, we release these fish that um, could not imprint in the creek due to the factors I mentioned earlier, which is to say uh, flashing stormwater, pushing them out. Or and uh, the very shallow creeks that occur during uh, uh, the non-rating season. So we've we've 
through a lot of trial and error, have a pond that you mentioned, which we hold these fish for three weeks, a month or longer, depending on the season uh, and other factors. And we will imprint them. We will run uh, and and I, I go back to something you mentioned earlier, the flow of water from a higher elevation to a lower elevation is the basis of this uh, fairly elaborate and sophisticated system that we have that allows creek water to be shunted creek side through a system of sedimentation tanks through this imprint pond and out into the creek. So we have naturally flowing creek water, gravitationally fed, no motors, no electricity, flowing through the system, well balanced on elevation and uh, the particular sedimentation trapping we need to do. And we are able to hold those fish uh, from the hatchery for uh, an amount of time and then release them directly into the creek. They're imprinted and as if they had spawned naturally they and emerged from the gravel, they make the quickest uh, time of getting to the nearest estuary, which we don't actually have. So they, within three days, uh, seven days, but uh, not much more than that, they will be on the other side of Carkeek Beach and in the eelgrass off of the beach, uh, nursing there as opposed to your traditional uh, tidally influenced mm. estuary. That's fantastic. And and they return every year. We have populations uh, returning, uh, ranging from uh, the lowest since I've been there is 250 individual uh, salmon returning to in 2014, the fall of 2014, we had 544 uh, chum salmon return. And these fish are all spawning. Uh, I, I say all, but uh, we, we do a, a, a scientific survey uh, in cooperation with Fish and Wildlife and Seattle Public Utilities where we open up each fish that's died within those 10 days I mentioned, and we determine whether they've spawned or not. That's the key uh, uh, data point that we're looking for. Did they spawn? Did they partially spawn? Did they not spawn at all? So we collect a bunch of other data where, uh, the ratio of sexes, the locations that they've died, predation, and a number of other things. But these fish are coming back and spawning. And so there is a, a natural question that, uh, that always uh, uh, is asked or usually is asked, well, if they're spawning, why are you... Still imprinting. Using yeah, yeah, exactly. And the the reason, uh, almost certainly, and certainly more studies are, are required to give uh, data to this point, is that uh, as soon as those fish have spawned, they they will mate. They'll find that 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 gravelly bed that's perfect. They'll mate. They'll uh, the female will build the nest. Uh, They'll pair up and uh, the eggs are laid, the uh, male fertilizes those eggs, the female covers those nests, but within a day or two, right in the primary rainy season in this region, we'll have these uh, numerous stormwater pipes unload a volume of water and in such a short time that we, 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 we suspect there's so much scouring and of those shallow nests that uh, there are a few that survive that onslaught. So for the same reason that the salmon run may have run dry originally uh, with s- s- 
the way we've decided to run our city, I mean, we could stormwater runoff and, and creeks and just fl- it flush it. It really is flushing out those those salmon. If the, Good choice of wow. words. Yeah. Hey, we are talking this morning with Rick Henry from the Carkeek Watershed Community Action Project, CCAP. They are, uh, well, they're seeking to promote and protect wild natural places like Carkeek Park online carkeekwatershed.org, right, if you want to learn more about what we're talking today. Yes. And, Rick, we're going to run out of time so fast, but um, you bring kids. I mean, this is a full-fledged scientific data-gathering project, not just a local community park cleanup. Uh, what can people do, and, and are there others like this going on up and down Puget Sound that, that more data can be learned and studied and changes be made to how we protect our, our water? Not easy to answer all of that in a short time, but <laughs> I'll take one the, or two the, of those. Yeah, uh, we have uh, two um, extraordinarily successful and busy times of the year: the fall and the spring. The springtime, we have uh, the imprinting season. We have we're releasing, as I mentioned, eighty to one hundred thousand fish every spring. A part of those uh, eighty uh, to one hundred thousand are the salmon in the schools fish that are raised in uh, 55-gallon chilled aquariums uh, through cooperation between uh, among uh, Seattle Public Utilities, private schools, Seattle Public Utilities, and uh, parks is, is in there as well. Of the 66 schools in Seattle that reported this year, I just saw the recent report from the folks that uh, are crunching the numbers. Uh, These are the people that support the aquariums in the classrooms, that do the training of the teachers, uh, and support the releases of these fish. Uh, uh, There there have been over uh, about 11,000 fish released by 66 schools into local streams cool and um the the uh i'm most familiar with Carkeek park now the their fish can't be released directly into the creeks as can coho and chinook coho and chinook will self imprint by the virtue of them staying in freshwater for uh, uh, more than long enough to imprint to the creek they're released in uh whereas chum as i mentioned if those uh, schools, and this year we had 28 schools that raised chum salmon. If they brought their fish to, say, Piper's Creek, drop them in the creek, those fish would swim out into Puget Sound, inst- uh, well, not instantly, but within a few days, and not get imprinted. So we hold their fish. This year we released um, uh, of their surviving fish of these from these 28 schools, uh, we released about Six uh, about fifty five hundred fish of of of, uh, of fish they raised did math science culture uh, work around them in the classroom for three months and now they're getting them as eggs and raising them and bringing them to us sea uh, cap where we make room for them imprint them feed them three times a day with our twenty one volunteers that uh, work with us from January through May. A uh, very dedicated group of 21 volunteers that uh, uh, marvelously take their time to help maintain, feed, imprint, and importantly, uh, be there. We, we could put automated feeders on that imprint pond, but we have 21 volunteers that are willing to be there for park visitors, for other educators, for schools, for classrooms, for daycare visitations to learn about watershed water quality issues, about salmon life cycles, and what they can individually do to, uh, to improve the way they view water flowing from that location yeah. high up in their neighborhoods down to Puget Sound. Wow. And, and there's just a lot of things. That is really cool that, that 
is it elementary kids or yes. junior high? Okay, yes. that are raising salmon all around they the are city, salmon. and they're getting released into Puget Sound. And that the is same that is schools neat to learn. come back in the fall to do uh, and they see the fish observations of the oh, spawning great. fish and other programs. I, uh, Gary, if I have just a moment, the uh, we could not do this without the Suquamish tribe. Who, who, uh, the Suquamish tribe have a fish hatchery called Grover's Creek Salmon Hatchery over uh, near Paulsbow, Indianola. Yeah. And they uh, they they provide they the provide our, not only our eggs and uh, chum fry to our sea cat programs, but they also provide the eggs to those twenty eight schools Excellent. that I that I mentioned. And they do this every single year since two thousand three. That's super. That's great to see all the community coming together in so many different ways that we've mentioned over over the course of this morning uh, that are really helping. And it's a long-term project, no doubt, uh-huh. but it is really cool to see changes over the, over the course of a generation coming and, and still continuing down the road. Rick Henry has been here this morning. Uh, he's the director of the Carkeek Watershed Community Action Project. Thank you so much for coming in today. And again, if people want to learn more about what you're doing there, carkeekwatershed.org, right? Correct. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming in, and a bigger thanks to uh, you know for the salmon. They can't speak for themselves. But <laughs> thanks for the, and the clean water and just Thank how you. nice that park looks. Thank, Thank you so you. much. A pleasure uh, being here, Gary. You are welcome. I am Gary Scheib. Thanks for listening today. We hope you've learned something new. Join us again next week as we continue to talk with people that are making a difference in our community. I'm Kate Daniels. Here's a great idea for Father's Day and what could be a memorable vacation for the family. A trip across the country to the other Washington and the Smithsonian Museum. Barbara Clark Smith is a curator at the National Museum of American History and is part of the team of a new exhibit, American Democracy, A Great Leap of Faith. She's here to share some special insights. Barbara Clark Smith, good morning. Thank you so greatly for being with us this morning. Oh, good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you. I am so looking forward to this wonderful and important opportunity to talk about history and very specifically in terms of American democracy. I'm going to call it our American democracy because it is something that is really personal to each and every one of us. Wouldn't you say, Barbara? It's absolutely personal to each and every one of us. And um, one of the great joys of working on this exhibition over the past uh, several years has been talking with people and learning how important this is this topic is to Americans of all sorts um, and sometimes in very different ways but I think that's reflected in this the work we've done on democracy um, and uh, the topic is absolutely close to a lot of people's hearts so you mentioned, Barbara, working on this for several years. What was actually the inspiration at the time for the exhibition and for the book? Well, the inspiration initially, I, I guess it really came from two things. One, we have an unparalleled collection at the National Museum of material in American political history. So we have extraordinary number of campaign materials, which include things, everything from buttons and ribbons that people have worn from, you know, way back, I mean, early 1800s, buttons and ribbons to support their candidate, uh, Andrew Jackson or John Quincy Adams. Um, But also um, larger artifacts like uh, 
parade banners, people, things people have carried in parades or torches that they carried. We have torches that were carried in the 1860 campaign which uh, by supporters of Abraham Lincoln. So we have that sort of thing. And we also have a great collection of artifacts related to the suffrage movement, both the movement for women's vote, but also uh, uh, African-American votes and the Civil Rights Act uh, and movement for that, and the youth vote. Uh, and in addition, we have protest materials and then a lot of uh, artifacts related to uh, presidents and leading Americans. So if you looked at our whole collection, we have wonderful treasures and ordinary things such as little campaign buttons. And together, they seem to uh, offer the opportunity to take a new look at American democracy. So that was a big part of the reason we got going on this topic. And, of course, it's relevant and so pertinent to us at any time, but it feels as though at this point in time, it really is something that all of us need to be much more involved with, much more aware of, and, and become passionate if we haven't done so already. Oh, I'm, I agree with that, and I, I think that uh, what the museum is doing is um, offering people a good historical background to the history of this democracy and a place, uh, a set of ideas, a set of artifacts that lets us begin conversations or helps us in our conversations. Obviously, uh, the Smithsonian's not going to tell anybody what they should think about democracy or what they should do about democracy, but thinking about it and doing something about it is the great American tradition, and uh, it's great to know that we descend from people who have been struggling with questions of democracy for uh, several hundred years now. And I expect what we would experience at the Smithsonian going through the exhibit is just getting a much deeper connection, an awareness of something that perhaps maybe we had a passing familiarity with or, or nothing at all, and, and that will be the spark that's going to ignite us onto an important path. Well, that's a great description. I think people will see familiar things. For uh, the great great treasure we have, uh, one of them is the desk on which Thomas Jefferson composed his draft of the Declaration of Independence. And I think most Americans can look at that and feel uh, excited and connected to this extraordinary moment uh, of 1776. And that's the moment we call the Great Leap of Faith, right, when when Americans said, okay, we not only can we be independent of Great Britain, but we can do without a monarchy, we can do without a hereditary aristocracy, and we can actually have a whole government, a whole nation based solely on the consent of the people. That was an extraordinary leap to take, and we're living with the consequences and the questions that come out of that decision, and uh, we have to decide, uh, as every generation does, what we want to do. Do we still have that faith, and do we want the nation to represent all the people, and uh, is the whole government based on the people? And if so, how do we make that work? And that, Those are questions that are central to the exhibition and central to American history. Now, there is the companion book, really, to the exhibition that's going on, and you are a contributor. And, and in fact, your 
particular chapter is just that, the great leap, a government based solely on the people. So you're just here giving us a, a, a slight insight into that, Barbara, I take it. Yeah, well, I am showing my uh, favoritism. I am a, a scholar of the 18th century, and I'm a curator at the museum who specializes in that era of the American Revolution. So to me, that's the most important one. But the book and the exhibition um, were done by four of us together. So there are other curators who would tell you the most important parts are the section on suffrage and winning the vote, all the different movements to win the vote, and then to keep the vote, arguments and disputes through the years about what qualifies people to vote and voter suppression or making voting easier. That's one section. Another curator would tell you, no, no, it's a section on the campaign materials showing the way these parties, which developed completely uh, not anticipated by the men who wrote the Constitution, they did not think we'd have a party system. So it's very interesting that that's become essential to uh, American democracy. And they would say that section's most important. And then there are two other sections, one on ways of participating beyond the vote, which include petitioning, either maybe writing a written petition or letter to the Congress, but also protest, uh, gathering in public, or lobbying. And then a section on citizenship, which treats the question of what sort of citizens does a nation need if its entire government is based on the people, on that citizenry. So there's a lot of different sections and uh, different questions raised that I think should interest a lot of people. And the thing about this is that there's a quality that is an education. It's creating our own classroom, if you will, because as youth in the classroom were either paying attention or not, uh, there will be perhaps the, a singular student who is really focused on it. But I think all of us, as we mature, really begin to see the importance and the value. And here we have that opportunity to get that education refreshed for us. I think that's right. And I hope that people will use the book and the exhibition that way. Uh, they're both quite accessible, although uh, based in scholarship and and uh, and accuracy and all of that. But they're they're written for uh, uh, the broad American public who is concerned and interested in these topics. And I think um, you're right that it's as adults we come to appreciate history because, yeah, there are some kids who love it, but mostly as an adult you have lived enough of life to understand how complicated things are. It doesn't seem easy anymore. When, when you're younger, you think, oh, I would have been on the side of the American revolutionaries. Oh, I would have been on the side of the abolitionists. Oh, I would have made all of these decisions, which in retrospect seem easy or obvious. But as an adult, you understand that every decision can be quite tough because you don't know how things are going to work out. And we've all had to make those decisions, and we've seen life turn out in ways we didn't expect. So it gives us much greater empathy for people in the past and say, you know, they didn't know if this revolution would work. They didn't know if this constitution would work. They didn't know if women voting was going to change everything or not. And 
so you begin to get a little more uh, sympathetic, even in, in my case, even to people who didn't want women to vote, say, just as one ex- example, I can see that they don't know. They can imagine this will totally change things. It turns out um, it, it doesn't uh, upset the entire Constitution, the entire nation at, at all, but it just extends freedom to more people. But that's easy to see afterwards. When you have to go through the changes yourself, it does take a leap of faith to say, yeah, let's include more people in this experiment. Let's uh, invite more voices into it. And then to experience what uh, what a great joy it is when there are more voices and the nation is acting together. And here's the great opportunity that the exhibit, the brand new exhibit, opens at the end of this month, at the end of June. Right. And we are so excited about that. We have nearly oh, 800 or uh, maybe slightly more artifacts in that exhibit, ranging, uh, as I suggested, from small, uh, ordinary items through great uh, historic things. We have protest posters from decades ago. So part of what's fun is saying, oh, you know, this, I can see what they were up to, and it's not so different from today, or, although you can also see ways it might be different from today. We have uh, Susan B. Anthony's red shawl. This is a shawl she wore when she would go to Congress to lobby for the women's vote. And people used to say in Washington that you could tell it was springtime whenever you saw uh, Susan B. Anthony with her red shawl on Capitol Hill. So we have a number of really famous uh, artifacts related to uh, uh, well-known people, but also a lot of artifacts representing the participation of ordinary Americans who are the people uh, who on whom the government is based. So it, it, I think it'll, people will really enjoy seeing, seeing that, um, not just the artifacts, but it's uh, the wonderful design. There's also great interactives where people can... Um, suggest their own ideas about democracy, about who should have the right to vote in different circumstances, or decide they agree or disagree with different uh, founders and their opinions of the people. I think people discovered that uh, actually there's hardly anything on which all Americans have agreed. In fact, nothing in our exhibition, not the Constitution, not how far to trust the people, not who should vote, not how much debate is okay, not there is no topic on which Americans have always uh, have all agreed, uh, but we've managed to have these debates and to listen to each other and to work them out for the most part. Um, so I think that's kind of an inspiring element of the exhibition and also of the book. And here's where I think it's so critical is uh, talking about we the people, we're involved in this. But we need to be informed, and I think to get this greater and deeper awareness and our connection to the past, what happened to bring us to this place, will help us to be much more informed as we move forward and and really become engaged together. I I hope that's true, and I I think that um, we do look at a number of themes and questions which have been common throughout the history of American democracy, questions of who's included, who are the people, uh, how should they participate 
and make their voices heard? How do you uh, limit the voices uh, or the power of the very wealthiest and the people who inherit the expectation that they will be the rulers, what the founding generation called aristocracy? How do you uproot that um, as well as accepting the leadership of uh, virtuous, they would have said virtuous uh, aristocrats, meaning those leaders who uh, were elites or successful but who had the, the welfare of the people as their primary goal. So there are all those questions which uh, we've really been asking a long time, and I think it's very helpful to revisit the history because you, you get a sense of what it is you really inherit as an American. You inherit this experiment that has never worked perfectly and that hasn't satisfied everyone and that's still at risk. And it's very useful to see what other generations have done, and sometimes they've been wildly successful, facing questions like, well, how much freedom of the press should there be? There is a constitutional amendment that the first and founding generation put in, but they also raised questions in the 1790s about what happens when the press is really misleading people or when you realize there are all these private newspapers, is what they would have, what the press was then, um, who were very partisan and only offering one part of the story to their readers. So they've been grappling with issues of what's the news, how do you make sure the population is informed, and saying, well, we can trust the people, but they do need to be informed. And that's an issue, I think, that runs through American history and sometimes pops up as very important. It's very important today, and we can see it in the past as well. So the opportunity to really get um, as close as hands-on we can be by visiting the museum is really that opportunity to become more informed, to really spark ignite that fire within us. And so the exhibit, while it opens at the end of this month, is something that's going to be ongoing for uh, quite some time, right, Barbara? Yes, it's, we were calling it a permanent exhibit, which is funny because historians know nothing is actually <laughs> permanent, but it will be up for uh, the next decade, uh, although there will, of course, be some changes as history happens and also as we have to shift out some of our more sensitive artifacts, which can't can't be exposed to the light all the time. So we're putting our best foot forward here with the opening, and we'd really encourage visitors, if they can come in this first year, uh, if you can make plans to get to D.C. to see this exhibit, that would be excellent because um, we'll have all our best artifacts out on, on exhibition, and uh, uh, it'll be an exciting time. I'm hoping that people, it will start conversations, that if you come with family or friends, and you travel through, uh, come with your kids and travel through, and you can answer their questions. We hope we've written wall labels to give you the information to answer your kids' questions. Um, but also start a conversation and, and across the generations or among your uh, family or, or group about what's important to you about democracy and what seems to matter still, what, what maybe doesn't matter anymore. What, what of the things that we inherit do we want to keep and pass on to our grandchildren? Those are conversations I, uh, I really hope that people who visit the exhibition 
will feel um, sparked to have with one another because that's where the richness of America lies and frankly the richness of the exhibition lies in the people who come to it and are inspired to think and who learn and who build on that learning uh, in their in their lives as citizens today. So the beauty here is that it is a, a permanent exhibition, mm-hmm. and maybe we can't, because we're on the opposite coast, and we do refer to you, Barbara, as the other Washington. The other, uh, we are the, the other Washington. Yeah. <laughs> For us here in Washington State. But to think in terms of, uh, you know, planning now, get that seed planted where we're going to be saving for some sort of uh, trip in the future, perhaps before school starts, perhaps it's going to be around Thanksgiving. There are just so many ways to really make it an experiential gift that will that will have, obviously, life-altering effects. Oh, I hope I hope that people who can manage it and who can spare the time, and I'm sure it's expense to come to come to this other Washington can do that and combine that with um, visiting people they know maybe over here on this coast or whatever they can do to um, uh, join in a a trip to D.C. when there are a lot of things to do here, uh, but I hope they'll put on their list coming to the National Museum of American History to see the American Democracy Exhibition. Now, I understand it is one of the museums that is most widely visited, I think, in the entire world. Right, we are very widely visited, and the, the Smithsonian overall is the world's largest collecting institution. So uh, we ha- are lucky to be building on uh, decades and decades and decades of uh, curators' work who have collected artifacts. On, and often when you collect them, you're not even sure how important they will be. Um, you have to, we do this today, we collect if there's a protest movement or march in in Washington, we collect artifacts related to that. And then we we decide we're going to wait for uh, a certain passage of time to see are these important, part of an important movement, or maybe they're just part of the ongoing um, movement of, or the ongoing tradition of protest, uh, protesting with your feet, uh, kind of voting with your feet when you can show up. A lot of those protests and other activities, of course, don't take place in Washington, D.C. They take place in uh, the real Washington out there and uh, every other state of the Union. And so we, um, this is why it's, it's really relevant to everybody uh, across the nation, even if uh, what's happening in Washington, D.C. sometimes seems far away. It is just uh, really so enticing, and I think so critical because we are a nation of um, many different cultures and immigrants. I myself uh, am a naturalized citizen because I moved here from Canada. So this is an opportunity for me to become more educated because my education was not in the schools here. And I think there's a, you know a huge number of us in this same boat. Well, just it's not just uh, ordinary citizens. We historians, I learn from my colleagues in doing this. I learned in doing research for this. There's an endless amount to learn always. And uh, the conversations we have had about uh, connections between, say, the time when they 
established the Constitution in the 1780s and what was happening in the 1880s, what was happening in the 1980s. I've learned from um, my colleagues, and that has made me rethink what it is to be a, a citizen and what's involved in this kind of experiment that we forget. You know, today, all sorts of nations say they are republics and democracies, whether they are or not. And all sorts of leaders say they are ruling on behalf of the people, whether they are or not. But back in the 1770s and 1780s, this was a new idea. And the idea you could do without a king and do without hereditary aristocracy was really pretty amazing. And so when they made that leap, they really had to figure out, well, how do you really make this work? And they really had some great ideas and wonderful insights, and then they also absolutely missed the boat on some things. I said before, they didn't realize we'd depend on lasting political parties, and they didn't like political parties. And today, we may not always like political parties either, and we face the problems of partisanship, uh, the difficulties of working with one another that they anticipated, the founding generation anticipated a lot of those problems. But at the same time, uh, in this very large nation, we've depended on political parties to help people organize and get them informed and focus their thinking. So uh, there's no easy answers to saying, oh, that was good or that was bad. Well, there was something really good and something not so good about the development of these parties. And if we think about that, maybe we can think about ways we want to act in the world today to improve the nation that we've inherited. Precisely. That uh, there's just such a feeling of excitement, actually, Barbara, about well, all so of that. <laughs> and I hope that others, as they listen, get that sense that, yes, this is a republic, we the people, but we need to be informed. It's not just, uh, you know, slapstick and that sort of thing. We need to know what is going on. And Knowing what the roots of it are, how this evolved, is so critical to it. Absolutely. And I think one of the things you you absolutely see is that uh, in the exhibition, and that comes out also in the book, is that um, at different times the parties have had to work to get people to vote. And that's a funny counterpart to the fact that people have struggled to get the vote. And people, people uh, sacrificed, people died to, to, so that you can vote. And, uh, other, and there's a lot of times that Americans then don't take advantage of that for various reasons. And so figuring out um, the contradictions like that and seeing that uh, voting is something that it has been absolutely central, but also people have said, no, we need even more than the vote. We need rights to speak up and be heard and to shape policy, but not just on Election Day. And just seeing the history of that, I think, is really inspiring. It's, there are surprising moments when people uh, who are working against slavery or who are uh, wanting to create prohibition and, and uh, outlaw alcohol, you know, things we might agree with today, things we might disagree with today, you see the ways that they uh, sought to influence their nation. And I think that that's something we can connect with. We want to make our ideals of what's right and what's fair felt in our society. And government sometimes seems to be blocking that, 
but it's government that the founders had faith in. They said, we can use government to help the people, to support a good life for the people, support American freedoms. And they did that uh, the best they could. And some of it worked, some of it maybe not, but that's where we still are today. Because that is just the way democracy works. Right, that's right. how it works, and which is to say it doesn't always work that well. It's pretty clunky. Uh, it's never been as inclusive as it, its highest ideals. But, oh, look at the number of Americans who have worked to make it better through hundreds of years. Yes, and then that field is still there for all of us, and that's the invitation here. More than that, it's like a responsibility that we need to learn so that we can actively participate to to get to that ideal. Well, I, as a historian, I have to agree with that. Historians think it's really important to know history, and it's also uh, inspiring and, frankly, really fun because it's really uh, fun to learn about people in the past and some of the things they did. Uh, as I say, some of it's inspiring. Some of it seems sort of a little crazy, or what were they thinking? But that's uh, like all history. You know, you, you sort through and you see different sides of the issue and you see different people's uh, ideas about it and their actions. And it just makes you aware how every human being is an agent, an actor, and is uh, able and, I think, as you say, responsible to decide for themselves uh, what is the best thing for their nation and their community and themselves. Precisely. So a website, Barbara, so that we can get more details and and really act on this and plan for our trip to visit this incredible exhibit. Great. Well, it should be the website for the National Museum of American History, and that's AmericanHistory.si.edu. Okay, so AmericanHistory.si.edu. And there we'll find out about the exhibition, decide when we want to go, and also about the important companion book, American Democracy, A Great Leap of Faith, correct? Right. The book is available at all fine bookstores and on the web, and it's got essays by each of the four curators and fabulous uh, photographs of wonderful artifacts. So we're hoping that uh, people who can't make the exhibition or can't make it right away can take a look at the book and can start some of the conversations and uh, share it with their friends and family. And that that's another way to experience both the artifacts and the ideas that are in the exhibition. Exactly. Well, Barbara, I feel that you have at least got us pointed now in the correct direction. This has been so, so inspiring. I just love that this is happening, and I appreciate your dedication and knowledge in bringing this forward. Well, thank you so much. You know, it's a privilege to work for the Smithsonian and for the American people, and everything we do is made possible by the American people, and especially for people out there on that other coast where it's harder for them to come in and see the museum, I'm just always so pleased to find ways to reach out to and listen to and connect with people who are absolutely members of the Smithsonian and supporters of the Smithsonian, no matter how far they may be. Right. Well, thank you again. Well put. Thank you.